The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Kara Crossway Brindle from Crossway Consulting with her presentation, Innovative and Interactive Approaches to Suicide Assessment and Safety Planning. All right, thank you for being here this morning. I know this is a heavy topic to kind of start your day off with, but I'm really grateful that you're here. Um, we're gonna get started and try and give you as much information as we can in that hour and 15 minute window before your next session. So let's get started. All right, well, why am I the person in front of you today? My name is Kara Crossway Brindle and I'm a licensed professional counselor here in Colorado. I actually graduated from a DU program here at a master's degree, so it's fun to be back. I love coming back to campus. But more importantly, for some of you, you might recognize this picture as Rainier in Washington State. I am not a Colorado native. Instead, I'm here about 10 years um, at this point. For me, the reason I'm in front of you is that my story is both personal and professional because I am a survivor of suicide loss twice over before I was 18 years old. In other words, I lost two family members to suicide before I was 18. Absolutely shaped me into the therapist you see before you and absolutely shaped my family. So this is a labor of love for me. This is a passion and I feel like so many of us are afraid of this topic that I'm here hopefully going to give you some tips and tricks and go from fear to confidence is kind of my gift for you today. So from there, I started working with at-risk youth and families. I've always worked with at-risk youth and families, worked in probation, worked in detention centers, now have a private practice doing this work. And last year we started a nonprofit for youth suicide prevention. Some of you already know this, but some of you might not. Suicide is the leading cause of death for 10 to 24 year olds in our state, in Colorado. Leading cause of death over accidents and other things that are happening. And for some of you, you knew that and it still is heartbreaking. And for others, you had no idea. Now I know there's an elephant here in the room with us today because we just got news of another youth suicide on Monday at Arapahoe High School. So having to do these presentations and recognizing that our world, this is continuing, is tough. I want you to take care of yourselves as we talk about this because I'm going to go straight at it today, knowing that it's important. And I know that that can be kind of visceral for people and triggering. So please take care, take breaks if you need to, but we're going to try and give you some information. So I'm not sure who's in the room today. I'm assuming some of you are professionals, some of you are students, some of you are community members. So I'm going to try and speak to all of you. Um, but the first thing I want to kind of touch on is what we have now. What's happening when it comes to addressing suicide in our community? So the majority of today's presentation is gonna look at the assessment process, what we're asking, what we know now, what the research is, but there are some things that have shifted pretty dramatically even in the last five years uh, when it comes to tracking this. So we're gonna talk about suicide assessment. We're also gonna talk about the resources that are available here in the state because a lot of people are looking for those resources. What does it look like to use the tech line, the hotline? to use the walk-in centers for mental health, things of that nature. But to start us off in this hopefully interactive process, if you're willing to talk to me and engage, I wanna know if you've heard of verbal contracts, and if so, what are they? Is anyone willing to play with me this morning and tell me what they are? Some of you are like, this is a trap. Yes, sir. Sure, so verbal contracts are typically put forward when somebody's um, maybe having suicidal ideation, mm -hmm. and they don't have a specific plan, 
a responser there. So just putting in place um, some steps that person can take if that work began to escalate. Right, so you're actually blending a verbal contract with safety planning, which I love, because safety planning is where we're headed. But let's start with that, with that hot button. Verbal contracts were the most popular response for the mental health community in the 80s and 90s. This was kind of our go-to measure. And it basically was a verbal or written contract saying, I agree to not kill myself in the next 24 to 48 hours. That was what therapists were doing to keep their clients safe. Now we know in this moment with the research that that actually was not an effective tool. It was not something that prevented a life from being taken. It actually just made us feel better as the helper. We felt reassured that they were agreeing verbally or in writing to not do this. It didn't actually save a life. So what this gentleman actually did really nicely is he started to describe where we've shifted, which is safety planning, which is that empowerment of what can you do for yourself when things start to decline. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well today, but just know that the hot button is there's a generation of people who've been told that verbal contracts are helpful, and yet for the most part we know they're ineffective. Now there are exceptions where that rapport is nice and strong and it does keep someone from making an attempt, but again, it's to make us feel comfortable. It's out of respect for us, not actually a life-saving intervention. So jumping right in there with those hot buttons, right? Because this is a complicated topic. Now safety planning, we're gonna talk more about what that looks like because you're seeing this in DHS, you're seeing this in schools, you're seeing this in mental health outpatient services, in the hospitals themselves. Like Safety planning is everywhere because it's applicable. It's empowering. It's what are you going to do for yourself first, second, and third to keep yourself safe. So we're going to hash out some of these today for those of you who are interested in that. As we talk about suicide and suicide prevention, how you show up in the room matters. Let me demonstrate. If I am a therapist sitting across from a client that is in complete distress, and I do this. You're not thinking of suicide, are you? What kind of message did I just give that person who's in distress? Discomfort. Discomfort, like my whole body recoiled, yeah, curled in on itself. What else? I don't get it, I don't get it, I can't help you, or please, for the love of God, don't tell me. Right? That's also a message that's happening when I go like this. Like, I don't want to know. I don't want to hold this for you. I don't know what to do. Right? So how you show up in the room really matters. Because if you're recoiling, your body language is showing discomfort, why would they open up to you? Why would they feel comfortable? They're already in this deep, dark place. And they're trying to feel safe. And if we're showing up that way, why would they disclose? Why would they open up at all? So engagement by no means is touching your client or engaging the person with physical touch, whoever they are in your community. It's more about showing up, leaning in, being present with them when they're in distress. Is it being mindful of what space you're in? Is it confidential? Is it being mindful of the things around you? Is there a coffee table or some barrier between you, a desk? Something that would prevent them from feeling like you can really be there and get it. So that's what I mean by engagement. And we do these presentations all over the state, and we talk to professionals like the mental health community, and then we talk to the community. And so I want to name that depending on your role, you may or may not be comfortable having this conversation. So if you take one thing away from today, find someone who is, if it's not you. Help them find a connection to someone who's willing to have that conversation. That's all we ask. Because the conversation is happening whether we want it to or not. We just want it to be positive. We want it to be empowering and safe and not stigmatizing and traumatic. 
Okay? So that's what we mean by engagement. Body language, tone of voice, facial expression, things in the room. Being aware of that to help them have that conversation. Are there questions about that? Okay. So today, as I mentioned, we are going to break down what we do now for an authentic, formal suicide assessment. This can be helpful to those of you who are serving the community in that capacity, but also if you just want someone to know this is what it looks like. This is what we're asking now. This changed a lot. I mean, we keep learning new things every single day when it comes to relationships to suicide. So this is an acronym that we created, the ALERT acronym, and it's how you feel. Your adrenaline's pumping when someone says, I'm not okay. I don't want to be here. I want to die. And so it seemed very appropriate to say, how do we shift that to being alert to what to look for and to remember all the complexities that come into an assessment process? So we're gonna break these down. The first thing to start this process off, if you are a mental health professional, you're going straight at it because we're expected to. We've been trained to, hopefully, <laughs> and if not, you're getting the training today to go straight at the question. So for this group, my question to you is, how do you ask directly about suicide? How do you ask it? Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan? Would be a great direct question about suicide. Sure. What else? I'd like to ask how long they've been considering taking their own. Yeah. So that timeline. How long has it been since you've been thinking about this? What got you to this place of darkness, right? So many of us now are going from that cold clinical checklist to engaging them in what we call a suicide story. How did you get here? What changed for this to be possible for you? Because it's not night and day. I think that's the biggest fear in our community is that we can't intervene, that it's impulsive, that they have a thought, a plan, and act on it in five minutes. They're the outlier. That is not the common experience for suicide. Sometimes it's months or years of pain before this becomes possible. So having a conversation by asking, are you thinking of suicide, would be a direct question. Now, some of you are having a visceral reaction to that because we had to like train ourselves not to have a negative reaction. Your own value system and bias shows up. The assist training that happens in our community, that's the first thing they go at. They say, I want you to practice this. I want you to role play asking someone about suicide because this is what usually happens. Are you thinking of hurting yourself? What's the challenge of that question when it comes to directness? It can feel like we're circling around it. And for those teenagers that we're really tracking that are struggling so much right now, they're concrete thinkers. In their mind, hurting myself and dying are two completely different things. They're not lying to you when they say, I'm not thinking about hurting myself, I'm thinking about dying. Right? So having a direct conversation matters. Now our community also agrees that asking this question gives someone the idea. Complete myth. In fact, if this is part of their experience, this gives them some relief to talk about it, to have someone acknowledge this is what's going on. It does not give them the idea. If they didn't have the idea, it's all good. You're just showing, modeling, showing up, having the conversation. Does this make sense to everybody? Questions about that? Okay. Um, if you are in this role of going further, going deeper than just asking the question to start us off, you might then start going on those plans. How long have you had the thoughts? How often do you have the thoughts? So this is your frequency, controllability, and duration question that is very much the standard suicide assessment we see today. So if someone in a hospital setting or 
in an outpatient mental health clinic is checking these things off, they're asking about how long you've had the thoughts. Now for some of you, what might be surprising is that 10.3 million people have had suicidal thoughts. 10.3 million. By no means do all those people get to a place of having a plan or even having intent. Because some of you might relate to this. You're driving along one of those windy Colorado roads in the mountains and you have a thought of what would it be like to just fall off of the cliff? You're now one of that 10.3 million. If you've ever watched It's a Wonderful Life and wondered what your life would be like if you weren't in it, just like the plot of that movie, that's a thought, right? This is such a human reaction. And that's why I named that first, that the thoughts themselves don't always get to an intense level. Maybe it's a fleeting thought, and therefore it feels much less risky than a thought that's happened for 24 hours straight. Does this make sense to everybody? So that's what that second bullet point's about. For these youngest two generations, your Gen Z, no, yeah, Gen Z, and millennial generations, so your 1984 to 2004, 2004 to now, these two generations also respect you asking a question of, when you think about suicide, what do you see? When you think about suicide, what do you see? That visual can give you a lot of context about their experience. Because in essence, suicide isn't about death, it's about pain. It's about pain that the person feels is inescapable. They cannot change it. Someone with chronic depression, they might have that experience of, this is my life. Someone with chronic pain, this is my life. This is why those populations are potentially at risk, because their mind is saying there's no other option. Suicide becomes possible. So what do they see? And then personal meaning. When you think about suicide, what does this mean for you? You'll get all sorts of answers. You'll get things like, I'm reunited with my loved ones. I'm finally at peace. I'm no longer suffering. These things might show up in part of the context. This is what I mean by suicide story. It's talking about it in more detail and more heartfelt conversation, not just checking things off the list. Also in your A for Ask category is thinking about the context of, is this new for them? Is this something they've experienced before? Have they had suicidal thoughts or experiences before? If so, what did those look like? Have they been hospitalized? Have they had this formal assessment happen before? Have they received treatment or therapy for it? Not only that, but is there a family history? Now, as a survivor of suicide loss twice over for myself, I was kind of shocked to put into this automatic category of people who had a slightly higher risk of suicide just because my family members had died. Now, this is becoming much more common, unfortunately, because suicide's on the rise, and many people in this room have been touched in some way. One of the most meaningful numbers I can give you is the number 135. Each death by suicide impacts 135 people, minimum, 135 people. So when you have that person in distress sitting across from you saying no one would care, no one would notice I'm gone, this number shows up for me, not as an argument, but as the reality, which is death impacts at minimum 135 people. You think of our celebrities, people in the media, goes exponentially bigger, but each one at minimum, 135. So what's the exposure? So many of us have been exposed to this in some way, whether it's a family experience, our peers. El Paso County here in Colorado is on the map at a national level for suicide. Not only suicide, but teen suicide. Because the 2017 data said that of the 23 suicides just in that county, there was a lot going on when it came to triggers and influence 24 hours before. 21 of those 23 youth 
had a conflict with their family within 24 hours of their death. Two of those youth went to a memorial of a peer who died by suicide within 24 hours of their death. These are things we're tracking. We're trying to figure out what is the suicide experience and how can we intervene? How can we help? How can we support? So that exposure is an important question. Now, for some of you, you're worrying about contagion effect, right? This is a term that's come up in the mental health space. If we have all these suicides happen, is it contagious? What we're actually noticing is what we call a cluster effect, which means that there's frequent amounts of deaths in a certain area, certain region, maybe it's a rural area. But you might be surprised to know this also applies to holidays and big events like the Super Bowl, that we have some suicides that are happening around those events. Now here's the question. In the US, when do the most suicides occur? What month or season do you think this happens the most? Winter, I heard winter. Any other guesses? Most of you are thinking that, and that's okay. I totally thought that too. It's actually March to May has the highest suicide rates in the US. Can anyone tell me why? Why would March to May be such a hard, hard time for people when it comes to this experience? Now you're all thinking quizzically. I can see it. You're like, this is a trap. Yes, ma'am. I'm not a mental health professional, uh -huh. but what I've seen across our school districts that's often, it makes you wonder if it is on the end of school coming and the end of this community. Yes, that's definitely a factor. So for our youngest generations who are in school, that loss of structure for spring break and summer break, graduation, we had some deaths by suicide of our youngest graduating class of seniors this year. Um, that is absolutely a factor. When it comes to mental health though, what's happening in the spring? What's happening for people who have mental health challenges in the spring? They're like, I don't know. <laughs> Mood disorders like depression and bipolar disorder, we go low in the, the winter months, right? We feel down, that darkness takes over, um, literally when it comes to things getting dark at five o'clock p.m. And then we just like lose that energy Right? So people who have depression or bipolar, they're telling you that's my low moment. And lo and behold, spring rolls around and we get just a little bit of energy back. We start popping out, that spring fever, that excitement, that renewed energy. Now what makes this complicated is for those that have depression as part of their experience, clinical depression, that little pop-up of energy gives them the energy to make an attempt. Whereas before they had no energy to do so. So for people in your life that have um, major depressive disorder, have bipolar one or two disorder, these are things that their mental health supports are tracking because that renewed energy is giving them energy to make an attempt, whereas before it was not possible. Complicated, but for some of you it's starting to resonate of like, oh yeah, we all get this little boost and now there we are. So March to May actually has the highest suicide rates in the US. Some of it is that loss of structure and some of it is the mental health component. We found the, or excuse me, preparatory acts. This is where I started to say, it's not always impulsive. Our biggest fear is that suicide is impulsive. I have a thought, a plan, a means, and I die in five minutes. That is the outlier. That is not, that is the exception to the rule. Because if that were true, I wouldn't be here in front of you talking about how to intervene in a compassionate way. Why would we have this conversation if we couldn't do anything? So the good news is it is preventable. And the biggest connection to this is the fact that they need connection. They need compassion. 
They need someone to show up and say, I'm willing to hold this for you. So if that's not you, find them someone who can hold that. Because it's heavy and it has an impact. So preparatory acts are kind of the warning signs this community has started to track. Some of these things you already know, the warning signs of suicide. What are preparatory acts? What are some examples of this? Getting their affairs in order. Getting their affairs in order, absolutely. Maybe they're investing in life insurance, checking out their will, sure. What else? Giving stuff away. Giving stuff away, especially these youngest generations. They don't have those adulting things, but they can give their belongings away. They can be like, here, take my watch, take this thing, take my shoes. What else? Starting to stockpile those medications, the pills, finding a means, gathering the weapon, those kinds of things are all preparatory. Sometimes it's writing that suicide note, practicing what they would say to their loved ones. That shows up as preparatory as well. How many of you have heard of Kevin Hines? Motivational speaker, suicide attempt survivor. I share his story because every time I do, I get goosebumps because his story is so powerful. He would tell you that he had all these things going on in his life that created stress. He was suffering from mental illness. He was not feeling supported. He had some psychosis command saying you should die. And one day he's like, this is it. Today is the day. I'm gonna go through with this. Now he lived on the outskirts of San Francisco. So his plan was to go to the Golden Gate Bridge to make his attempt. Now a lot of people have rehearsal where they visit the place they're going to do this. For him, that was the case. He would tell you he was so distraught, he was visibly upset as he was riding the bus to get to the Golden Gate Bridge. And he kept telling himself, if just one person looks at me and says, are you okay? I'm not gonna go through with it. So he's riding along public transportation and we're all sitting here hoping that that was his experience. That someone said, hey man, are you okay? Didn't happen, didn't happen. He gets to the Golden Gate Bridge and he's like, oh, this is it. Like, if I don't have anyone engage me soon, I'm gonna have to do this. All of a sudden he hears, excuse me. He's like, oh. Finally, it's going to happen. Will you take my picture? Golden Gate Bridge, popular tourist trap, right? He takes this woman's picture, launches himself over the edge of the bridge, and falls at 75 miles an hour, hitting the water and breaking his back and surviving. The most important thing I can tell you, though, is his story is that when he left, when his feet left the bridge, he said, I don't want to do this. I just wanted the pain to end. I don't actually want to die. Can you imagine what that would be like as you're falling to your potential death, realizing this is not what you want? That's what I mean about this is really about pain. It's not about death, it's about how do I get the pain to stop. For him, preparatory acts, rehearsal were all part of his experience. There was time to intervene, and it just didn't happen. But now he goes around the world and makes that motivational speech to say, I am that person who survived. I'm so glad I did, and can we all stay for another day? Can we make this happen? Can we connect? So if you haven't checked out his story, highly recommend it on YouTube. It's very powerful. He has a, a documentary now called The Ripple Effect, where he talks about this. So rehearsal and intent, these last two things to, to ask about, are important because that is an opportunity to say, how deep and dark has this gotten? How long has this lasted? Has anyone reached out to you? Have you had any support so far? Or is this the first time they're talking about it? That all, all that context can be really good to figure out how deep that pain really is. Because if they're talking to you about it, the assumption in the mental health community is they want something to change. If they're actually engaging you and talking about this, they want something to be different. The ones we really worry about are the ones that never have any signs and make a decision and 
we have no clue that they're in that place. But they are, again, the outlier. The majority, it's about pain, so they're wanting to talk about it. They want to engage. Are there questions about that? Okay. So we've gone through the A for ask of our alert acronym. Now we need to talk about what we're listening for. In the mental health community, there are so many risk factors we're tracking. I want to share some of those with you. Because if you're having this conversation with a loved one, a community member, you might be hearing these things first. This might be what they're actually disclosing to you. Rather than saying, I'm suicidal, they might start listing off all the things that are happening, the stressors, the symptoms, that kind of thing. So what are we listening for? Well, suicidal behaviors. Do they have self-harming history that's related to suicide? Now, some of you might be surprised to know that suicide is one of nine possible reasons that someone engages in self-harm. One out of nine possible reasons. Our community reacts to self-harm as if it's a suicide attempt. And I'm here telling you that the research shows it's one of nine experiences as to why someone engages in self-harm in the first place. So what is their suicidal behavior? Have they had thoughts before, plans? Have they been hospitalized? Have they had an attempt? These are things we're listening for in their experience. We're also listening for mental health, of course. As a therapist standing in front of you, this is what I do day in and day out. They are coming in saying something is not working I'm feeling that dysfunction, I'm feeling that disruption, I need some help. So here's the challenge. Every single mental health diagnosis increases risk, impacts risk for suicide. It is not a cause and effect relationship, it's a correlation, it's a relationship to these two things. Now with that being said, it's part of that designation of a clinical diagnosis. It has to be enough of a disruption to have a diagnosis of anxiety depression, and so on. There are five mental health diagnoses we're really tracking that are connected to suicide pretty strongly. And the first one's not gonna surprise any of you because the media has latched onto this and they keep pushing it out as part of their report. What is it? Number two, <laughs> depression. Depression is the number one correlated mental health diagnosis to suicide. Now, for those of you who have had this experience or had a loved one or someone in your life who's experienced depression, it might start to make sense when we talk about symptoms, that hopelessness, that loss of energy, the sleep disruption, lack of appetite. These things start to compute into the perfect storm where suicide feels possible. So number one is depression. Number two is PTSD trauma. Number three is substance use. Number four is bipolar disorder. And number five is borderline personality disorder. Now these are subject to change, right? These will fluctuate based on what's happening in our community, but these top five in this moment have a lot of overlap when you think about what they're experiencing. And I see some of you nodding, like, yeah, makes sense. Mood, sleep, these are things that are the symptoms they might talk to you about first. A big connection recently is that sleep disruption category. Nightmares, night terrors, insomnia, difficulty falling asleep, when we come back to technology in our youngest generation a little further in this talk, it starts to make even more sense why this youngest generation is, is struggling. Because let's just be real, they're sleep deprived, it's part of it. Perfect storm, and we'll come back to that. So mental illness or mental health challenges absolutely correlate, connect, excuse me, not correlate, connect to suicide risk. It's kind of like using the genetics component to alcoholism. It doesn't mean you're automatically gonna become an alcoholic, but it increases your risk. That's what we're talking about here. 
The mental health diagnoses increase your risk for suicide because of that disruption and dysfunction. It's not a cause and effect. Questions about that? More likely than not, if you're engaging a loved one or a community member, you're hearing about symptoms first. The doctor is hearing about symptoms first because that's traditionally how we go about it, right? We go to our doctor and we say, I'm not sleeping well, I'm not eating, I've lost weight, gained weight, my hair is falling out, whatever it is, fix it. That's just the US culture for medical care. Now this starts to resonate when I tell you that there's a chunk of people who've gone to the doctor within 30 days of their death by suicide. Within 30 days, they had that visit and then they died by suicide because they were looking for something, but they never outright said, I'm suicidal, I'm not okay. They were talking just about symptoms, which is the challenge. Now you're seeing this be modified with like screeners. Everyone's getting screened when they go to their doctor. They're asking questions now because otherwise we're gonna miss it. We're not having that outright conversation. But symptoms show up first. Are there other symptoms you're thinking about that I haven't named that would be a part of this experience for someone? So we talked about food, weight gain, weight loss, hopelessness, energy, sleep disruption. Yes, sir. So relationships, that's more the stressor side, absolutely. Yep, we're gonna talk more about stressors here in a second. Mm -hmm. So the symptoms can show up in all sorts of ways, and yet we're not always making that connection to it being this deep and dark. So it's something to absolutely listen for. Family history I already talked about, that you are automatically at higher risk for suicide if you had a loved one, immediate family specifically, die by suicide. The fact that each suicide impacts 135 people at minimum starts to show up again, right? When I did my first out of the darkness walk here in Colorado, which is through the AFSP um, for the memorial of people lost, it really shocked me to see people who had one family member die in one year and the very next year someone else by suicide. It was really hard to watch them walk around with those shirts, right? Like, wow, this is huge. So family history matters. Now, if you have a candid, deep conversation with someone about this, they might say one of two things that make this more possible. Number one, I miss them and I want to be reunited with them. Maybe their spiritual or religious beliefs allow that to be true. Or number two, they modeled it for me. They modeled what it's like to escape the suffering. I really want that, so I'm gonna try. These are just two examples of how this dynamic gets a little sticky. That family history influences people. Even if they're devastated in the moment that the family member died, two, three, five, 10, 20 years later, are they then considering it themselves? It's possible. Access to firearms, hot button, Colorado, lots of places. Firearms continue to be the most lethal means for death by suicide. It's really hard to mess up. That sounds kind of morbid, but it's really hard to mess up with a firearm if you're gonna use that as your means. And so this continues to be a challenge and a risk for suicide, especially if the weapon is loaded in your nightstand versus what we're asking people and families to consider now is ammunition on this side, gun on this side, both are locked, make this hard to get to, because that youngest generation is accessing firearms when you're not home, specifically the after school hours is when they're accessing this, this means. So we're asking families to use gun locks, gun safes, things of that nature, trying to make this easier, because actually the one positive out of this is if you've spent months fantasizing about this being your means, and we take the means away, even temporarily, you don't find another way you don't go, oh, I'm gonna go for the pills now. 
or I'm going to try hanging. Like, if this has been your experience for months where you've thought about it in detail, they don't become flexible and pick something else. So you are buying time for other interventions by just saying, can I keep these separate? Physical illness. Again, that inescapable pain, physical illness shows up as a risk factor. Chronic pain shows up as a risk factor. If I believe this is how I'm going to experience my life from here forward, I might not want that quality of life. This might become possible. Lack of social connection and support. Absolutely relevant to millennial and Gen Z generations. Why? Because the data is showing us that they feel isolated, anxious, and depressed. They're the most isolated, anxious, depressed generation we've ever seen. And I have people constantly saying, what's their deal? What's happening there? Help me understand this. Why is this going on? Well, let's think about it from a place of comparison. We have a generation that now can compare themselves to all the successful people, specifically through social media, and have fear of missing out, but also they all look so happy, what's wrong with me? It's not reality, right? You all know this in this room, because you're here willing to talk about it. But that youngest generation doesn't always have reality. It's a filter. It's a skewed view of looking at things. So that comparison makes a big deal for this. You also have the youngest generation say, no one really cares. They'd be better off without me. This is the language of suicide for some. And they convince themselves that that is true. For some of the celebrities that have died by suicide recently, this showed up in dialogue. Because people are like, why didn't they think about their 11-year-old? Why didn't they think about their kids? It feels, for a lot of the clients I work with, it feels like poison. It's just this narrative in their head, and it just, they convince themselves they'd be better off without them. It's so powerful. So that lack of connection and support shows up with all the risk groups we're tracking. Veterans, youth, female physicians, veterinarians, farmers, Native American folks, LGBTQ+, right? There is no one population that is safe from suicide. Suicide doesn't discriminate. Because as you started to hear today, all these things are relatable. The stressors, the symptoms are things that as humans we can experience, and we're not all going to be at risk of suicide. It's really just the combination that shows up. Psychiatric hospitalization as a therapist makes me really nervous. <laughs> One, because for the school-based folks, they don't even know that their student went into hospital level of care over the weekend. Sometimes they're not getting that communication at all. But two, when it comes to this dynamic, it's really about what happened in that space. Did they actually get support? Did they have a medication change? Did they have a supportive network there and they're coming right back out into a lack of support? The stressors are still there, right? Like the things that are happening in their world are still there. They wanted that reset button, but did they actually get it? So it's complicated, especially when we're talking about that little up of energy. We changed their medication and that care. They have a little up of energy. Now we're worried they make an attempt if they were significantly low, depressed, that kind of thing. This is our last resort is hospitalization, right? We don't want it to be the knee-jerk first resort anymore. We want them to do safety planning and empowerment work and get support outside of the hospital setting. Because for a lot of these people, it's traumatic. To be handcuffed, put in the back of a police car, an ambulance taken there, wait four hours to get evaluated, it's not ideal. And so we're really trying to help people understand this. Because for my clients, who are mostly young adults, what they're telling me is they were afraid to say anything because they thought I was just going to slap them in a hospital. That is still the biggest fear for this conversation when we ask people why they're not talking about it. You're going to put me in the hospital. 
So, what can we do from here? Well, you can have all those things that you're listening for, symptoms, mental health, and then the stressors show up. So that change in relationship, other stressors, the um, financial stress, homelessness, legal contact. Relationships changing is a big one for people, especially that youngest generation. Do you guys know that they're breaking up with their friends like it's a romantic relationship? That visceral emotional reaction is showing up for friendships ending just like a romantic partner? It feels life or death for some of these, these young people. And so those are the stressors that when you come into a system like this and you say they were fine yesterday, this is what I'm thinking about. Did something happen in the last 24 hours that put them up against that edge? that made suicide a possibility. For this youngest generation, they had a survey of 4,000 high school students that launched and released January 3rd of this year. Attorney General launched it, released it, and it said, what's happening to you guys? Tell us what are the factors. What do we need to be listening for? What's happening? And they said three things. Pressure, perfectionism, and lack of connection and support. These were the top three things that this group of young people were saying make suicide possible for them. The pressure, I have to have it all figured out at 15, 16 years old. I have a, a quarter life crisis at 25 because I still don't have it figured out. And then you and I in the room could be like, we didn't have it figured out at 15, 16. Oh, and by the way, they have to take AP classes, volunteer, apply for the Ivy League schools, overscheduled, pressure for so many of these young people is the factor we're really tracking. Perfectionism, if I don't do it well the first time, it's over. Black and white thinking, all or nothing. And then that lack of connection and support. No one cares, my friends ghost me for something better. I made plans, they cancel them. That is something that's showing up with the youngest generations. That keeps showing up in the stressors as well. But when you apply it to these different populations, Something else I want you to think about, there's not one particular thing we're looking for or listening for, but there is a combination of things that really made an aha moment for me as a therapist that I want to share with you. Dr. Thomas Joyner is a researcher in suicide. He lost his dad to suicide when he was an adult, and he wanted answers. He wanted to know why that happened. He didn't see it coming. So now I want you to picture Venn diagrams. Do you remember these circles that overlap from grade school, some of you? <laughs> I want you to imagine three of them floating here in the air. One, two, three, right? Three's on top. That little sliver that they all overlap is what he calls the capacity for suicide. That these three things all have to be present for that to be possible. And here are the three things. Isolation, go figure, we've just talked about that. Burdensomeness, so being perceived as a burden on others. And fearlessness. Now when you apply this to our veteran population that's dying 22, 23 veterans a day, for me, this was my light bulb moment. Not to say this is okay, but to have an explanation as to why it might be showing up more often. Because here we have a group of individuals who were very close, deployed with a group, and then coming home, reintegrating into the society, and not feeling good, feeling isolated, feeling like they lost that connection, feeling like a burden on their family if they're experiencing PTSD, substance use, other disruptions in their life. And then the fearlessness of seeing and doing things I can't even imagine. Perfect storm. Now fearlessness doesn't just mean war. It can mean someone who's been subjected to physical or sexual abuse for years. Who's been through things that fear does not feel 
like a barrier, that death doesn't feel like a barrier because they've been through so much. So that lens of these three circles overlapping for the capacity really resonated with me when you think about those three categories and what they represent when it comes to risk. You can apply, apply this to any population, LGBTQ+, those physicians I mentioned, farmers, all of them. But the GLBTQ+, is on here for another reason. Why are they an at-risk group? Why are they at risk of suicide? Higher rates, 40% higher. Um, so the LGBTQ plus individuals are an at-risk group. Do, we not, do you know why? <laughs> what else is a factor? It's a part of that, isolation. Mm -hmm. Right, and there was something else over here? Lack of acceptance. So if there's anything to say about this group, it's that it's not their identity, their gender or sexual orientation that put them at risk, it's how the community responds. Right, that's what you're all saying. Do they have rejection, discrimination? Are they homeless? Because they came out to their family and their family was unaccepting. That is a big stressor for that group, especially the youngest who are coming out in high school, their family is not re receiving that well. Now we have a, a generation of, that has homelessness as a high priority, as a factor. So by no means is their gender expression, identity, or sexual orientation what puts them at risk. It's the community's response. It's what we need to know about that category. Technology use. I get this question a lot when I come up and do these presentations of like, what's the deal with technology? What's this doing to us? Well, I don't have all the answers because we can't keep up with how technology is evolving, but we do have one answer for you, which is related to social media. What if I told you there's a certain number of hours of social media a day that puts you at higher risk for suicide? Just social media, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, etc. <laughs> How many hours a day would that be? Any guesses? <laughs> You're all hoping it's eight. Keep going. What else? One, three, four, three. Three is the number per day. So come back to the Generation Z, the iGen generation. The internet generation was the coin term. So iGen, like iPod, haha, -ha, clever. Dr. Gene Twingy put that together. When you think about them and those three hours of social media, where are they fitting that in? Like maybe in class, sneaking under their desk, do that. Sure, what else? What else? When? Anytime they can, before bed, at night. When we're talking about that overscheduled generation that has so much going on after school, they're fitting in at night. So now, we have them up till two, three in the morning, getting up by seven to go to school, sleep deprived, not able to reset, comparing themselves to others, wondering why they're the most anxious, depressed generation we've ever seen, and that's the perfect storm we're naming. It's not just technology, it's how it snowballed into something that's disruptive for them, that they're comparing themselves to others, that they're not sleeping to reset their biological system. Add in puberty and, oh my gosh, right? Like, no wonder, like all of us went through puberty and it was not a pleasant hearts and flowers situation, but now we're adding in comparison of people being really successful. Because no one's putting on social media their challenges, they're just putting out there their successes, right? How many followers do I have? Did I get into the college I wanted? Things like that. So three hours a day of social media is what we know now. 
Can't speak to video gaming, can't speak to any of the other stuff so far, but we are tracking this when it comes to suicide. So in <clears throat> the E for engage, we also need to go a little lighter because some of you are like, all right, Kara, get to the point. Like, this is heavy. What can we do to actually engage them on the positive side for this? And that would be protective factors. For me as a therapist, with good rapport, I can look straight at my client and say, what's keeping you alive? It's a pretty outright question, right? Especially for those that are coming in in distress saying, hey, I just made an attempt, which has happened to me before. Um, I just made an attempt two hours ago. I made it to your office. Thank you so much for being here. How'd you get here? And what's keeping you alive right now to have this conversation with me? And protective factors can be categorized in two different elements. External, as in the things outside of them that are keeping them alive, and internal. So let's start with the external. What are some things that people would tell you are keeping them alive? Plans for their future. Unfinished business kind of feel there, yeah. What else? Animals, my favorite, pets. Coloradans, you love your dogs. I've never seen so many dogs until I moved here 10 years ago. Like, Washingtonians were kind of grumpy without the coffee or whatnot. So I came here and I was like, people love their pets. And this showed up when I worked at the crisis hotline because I had one caller every night who said, I am suicidal, I have a plan, I have a means, but there's one thing keeping me alive, his dog. We worked with that for months because that was it. That's all he had. Now, can you imagine what would have happened if something happened to his dog? Crisis, right? But in that moment, we worked with it. So pets absolutely are an external protective factor. What else? Children. Children, mm-hmm. Children, family, spouses, partners, sure, of course. The challenge with the external is the risk of us saying, I think this is your protective factor. It's your family, right? It's your dog, right? Like, of course it's that, it should be that. When you work with teenagers, you're gonna get a big F you if you say this is what I think your protective factor should be. No one likes to be told what's keeping them alive. You can normalize it saying other people have found their pets to be motivation just to live. But to say I think it should be this is a real risk for us as the helpers. Because you're gonna get a reaction that's not pleasant. <laughs> I've been there when I was a young clinician. Like, oh, hit a, hit a nerve, right? Because you can't tell them what's keeping them alive. They have to tell you. So before we move to the internal, I want you to recognize that protective factors is about quantity, not quality. We're not looking for one particular protective factor. We're looking for as many as we can get. For George, which is what I'll name the guy on the hotline who said, I'm suicidal, my dog is the only thing keeping me alive, I wanted more things for George. I wanted him to discover more reasons to live for himself because that dog was a risk for us. If someone hit it, if it got ill, if it got lost, crisis moment. The quantity over quality. On the internal side of protective factors, what's keeping people alive? Sometimes it's a moral issue, mm -hmm. especially if their religion, right? Growing up in a religion where it's very taboo. Absolutely. So moral compass slash religious spiritual beliefs could be a factor here. What else? Mm -hmm. So maybe resiliency or I've been through worse kind of thoughts show up, that narrative. Sure. So for some of you, you're thinking of this, but it's not coming up right away, is fear. 
What if they have a fear of death, actually? They're suffering, they're in a lot of pain, but they're afraid of death. Or more importantly, they're afraid of making an attempt and surviving it. What if my quality of life declines significantly because I make an attempt and now I'm paralyzed for the rest of my life? I have significant damage to my body, my brain. For some of my clients, having this as a candid conversation, they don't want their family to find them. They don't want them to deal with the mess. Sometimes the protective factor is, this would devastate my mom. I've heard that one. This would devastate my mom. I can't do this while she's alive. So I can imagine, again, as a therapist, I'm tracking how that relationship looks. If they're fighting, I now don't see that as a protective factor. If they kick them out of the house, that is no longer a protective factor, right? This is where it's fluid and tricky. So as many protective factors as you can think of are kind of what we're having them think about. How do we get them there? Curiosity. Asking them, is there, has there ever been a time where you felt slightly better? What was happening then? A time when you didn't feel depressed. What did that look like? Sometimes that crafts the protective factors for you. Because again, you're not going to tell them what they are. But that's not effective. So external and internal, quantity over quality. More the better. Moving into our responding. So our R of our acronym. What are we doing? Well, from the mental health lens, we're trying to designate a level of risk. Are they high risk? They have all these risk factors present. They have a plan. They have a means. Their intention is strong. Are they moderate risk, which means they have certain things showing up, but maybe they have protective factors kind of balancing that out? Or are they low risk, as in having some thoughts, and that's it? Right? 10.3 million people. Thoughts. That's it. Guess what? They're all low risk, according to this categorization, for now. It's really hard to put people in this box, and so I don't think this is going to stay forever. I think we're going to find a new way to identify risk. But for now, it's these three, high, moderate, and low risk. So which of these three is the most challenging to support? Which category do you think has the most challenges to provide resources? Moderate. Moderate. Because again, if I use George, my caller, as the example, if his dog died, he might have been moderate risk, now he's high risk. Or he gets more protective factors, now he's low risk, because he's balancing this out a little bit more. Maybe some of the stressors have changed for better or for worse. So your moderate risk folks are the ones that we have to track the most because they could go up or down. And if we're missing that, that can be a critical crisis. So the high risk folks, if there's imminent danger, we're looking at that hospitalization, right? Something that is imminent. We need acute care. But what if I told you that we have two designations now when it comes to suicidal experience? It's not just acute, which is the traditional what we think of, of they made an attempt, they have a means, they have all these things. What about those chronic and let me define that for you. I have a group of young adults, I don't know why they're all young adults right now, that are telling me if I don't get my stuff together by 30, I'm going to die. If things don't improve for the better, I don't find the love of my life, the best job, I don't get my needs met, I'm just going to end it. Give up. Wash my hands with this. They would not be considered acute because it's not right now that they're telling me that they're in distress. I'm still going to track it because it could change. But right now, to hospitalize them would serve no purpose. In fact, it might harm them to be put in that system. So here's the perfect scenario of your worst nightmare. You have someone come in, if you're a mental health clinician, I had someone come in who I was just starting to build a relationship with. And we're doing our intake paperwork, talking about what my role is, all the great things. And she goes, oh, by the way, I've been suicidal for the last eight years. 
I'm like, all right, you have my attention. Can you tell me more about that? What's that like for you? Well, I can't die until my son is 18 years old. That's her protective factor. What's your next question? How old's your son, right? Adrenaline, your heart's going, you're like, okay, you're telling me your son's not 18, but oh my gosh, I don't even know you. How old is your son? She says 14. So you're giving me four years to work with you to potentially identify other reasons to live, to improve your quality of life before he hits 18. Is that why you're here? Yes. So I had buy-in from her to do some work, but you, you can bet your butt that I was looking at this and tracking this because if she had a fight with her son, this could have all gone out the window. If he chose to live with his dad instead of his mom, this could no longer be a protective factor. Does that make sense? So, your chronic individual folks, your chronically suicidal folks, if you try and take suicide off the table, it's not gonna work. For them, it's a comfort to know that if things really go bad, this is my option. It's not here and now, it's in the back of their mind saying, I want this for comfort. So if you try and take it off the table, you're gonna get someone who's not going to engage or possibly leave and not come back. Because for them, this is the comfort they need and they need it to be possible if other things like therapy or support from others doesn't work, if something doesn't change for the better. So with that being said, your action steps are gonna look really different. You're not gonna hospitalize a chronically suicidal individual necessarily unless something changes. Instead, you're gonna work on relational stuff, coping skills, and safety planning, which is what we're moving into next. Now that youngest generation I'm talking about that's coming into my office saying if I'm not put together by 30 is really interesting for me because they're also referencing the 27 Club. Do you know what that is? Some of you do. The celebrities who've died by 27 from overdose or suicide. There's that glamorization part that we have to be careful about because for them, they're relating to it. But for now, know that the chronic people we're tracking and we're building relationships with them because they're not of imminent risk right now and we're wanting to make sure that that stays that way to the best of our ability. So what's actually happening for high risk, moderate risk, and low risk? All three of these categories can benefit from safety planning at some point. Your high risk might be after they've gotten that higher level of care. But for your moderate and low risk, safety planning can be helpful because it's really about these components. Does the person themselves know what it looks like to feel well? Do they have a reference of, of being well? Who are their supports? Now, I've just told you, this youngest generation feels like they don't have any. So if you go straight at it saying, who are your supports? You're gonna get another big F you. So here's how I actually frame it to those young people. Who in your life can provide a positive distraction? Because for the irony of this, they're willing to say I'm not okay, but they're not willing to share I'm suicidal with their friends, not very often. But if you say who can reach out and provide a healthy distraction, send you that funny cat video, talk about their day, get you out of your head, lo and behold, someone shows up on their list. Could be a coach, a mentor, a teacher, a peer. It'll be somebody, because it's not that personal, intimate disclosure of I'm suicidal. It's I just need a distraction. The professional supports and contrasts are their mental health team, if they have a therapist, the hotline, the text line. The hotline here in Colorado, through Colorado Crisis Services, has contracted grant funding to answer in six seconds. They're trying to answer those calls in six seconds. Is it always perfect? No. But they're trying, which for someone in crisis can be huge, super important to feel like they're getting an answer right away. In contrast, 
The youngest two generations love texting. They don't like talking on the phone, and yet the text line doesn't have the same response time. It could take up to 10 minutes to get a response because it's not staffed the same right now. That could change, but right now, when I'm having those conversations with clients about what to use in between our sessions, I'm letting them know it could be 10 minutes of waiting. Think the old AOL dial-up chat box where you're like waiting for someone to enter the room, the chat room. I'm dating myself right now. Um, but that's what it can feel like. So if they're in imminent danger, they're in crisis, that might be a deal breaker. 10 minutes versus six seconds. So let them know what that can look like. You also want them to know that it's staffed by mental health clinicians, that who's answering the phone is trained, and that they're allowed to be anonymous up until their intent or plan is significant, right? They're allowed to say, I'm not okay, I'm thinking these thoughts, and I can give you whatever name I feel like or stay anonymous, but as soon as they get to that critical level of having a plan and high intent, they're going to make sure they're actually okay, right? Do a welfare check, ask for their name, other things are going to be put in motion. So having that awareness and that knowledge is helpful to you because sometimes people want to know that and they don't know who to ask. Like they don't want to call the hotline and be like, do I have to tell you my name? Sometimes it's reassuring for them to know how to use these resources and use them well because they feel comfortable with the expectation. Warning signs and triggers. Warning signs are the internal stuff, those symptoms, irritability, short fuse, I'm crying at the drop of a hat, versus triggers are the external things. For my clients, it's trauma anniversaries. It's this is the anniversary of my grandma's death, of a sexual assault, of a car accident. This season is when I had my first major depressive episode. For one of my clients, it was how the light looked because it was showing fall, kind of like right now, where it's just kind of showing a different color of light. Some of you know what I'm talking about, where it's just a different yellow. For some, it's driving in a certain part of town, being in a building, a smell, a sight, a, a taste of something, sensory stuff. So the more they know about themselves, the better they can do a safety plan because they know what they're navigating, what they're tracking. And so it really is a self-discovery exercise as much as it is a safety plan. How well do they know themselves? Your um, making the environment safe and action steps are things like, are the medications secure? Are the weapons locked up? Are we making sure that they're not left alone? Do they need more supervision or more time with family or something to be a buffer? Now, if you have family in your safety plan, learn from my mistake and make sure the family knows they're part of the safety plan. So I had a client who's like, I want to go to grandma's house when I just really need a break. Showed up at grandma's and she's like, why are you here? <laughs> my client's like, I don't want to tell you that. Like, I just want it to be a safe space. Now, this was years and years ago. But safety planning can be useful not just for suicide, but for domestic violence, substance use, and family conflict. I've done extensive safety plans where every single family member was named who's in the household and what they look like when they're well and what they need. And it's a great place to have parameters around a teenager saying, I want you to leave me alone. And you're like, that's not possible if it's related to suicide. I cannot leave you alone, but here's what I can offer. Here's what we can do instead. So safety planning is showing up in all of our systems to cover these things. The action plan is, what are you doing first, second, and third to help yourself? Am I taking a walk? Am I calling grandma? Am I calling the hotline? Am I penning my cat? Whatever is specific to the person this plan is for. <clears throat> Questions about this? All right. To finish up our alert acronym, specific to the mental health field, we were taught if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. For the professional side, documentation is key, but on the personal side, 
Maybe this gives your person that's struggling a little bit of comfort that they don't have to share their story again. What does it look like to say, I've done an assessment, this is what's going on, and sending that to them, with them, to the ER or to the hospital? What does it look like to say, you don't have to tell your story to five more people today if that's harmful for you? So the documentation could be, I gave them resources. I, gave, I had an assessment done. I made sure they had the hotline and text line. Whatever it may be. From the mental health space and being a supervisor, one thing stands out to me, which is getting buy-in from other people. Is the family going to help keep them safe? Can they keep them safe? For example, when I was in community mental health, I had a team member, a, a therapist that I was supervising, call me in distress saying, hey, my client's suicidal, they're a teenage boy, they're in a foster home, I've made plans with the foster take him to the ER. Because at that time, that was the best option. So great, you've done everything you can, she's verbally agreed to this, you can go ahead and go, because she was doing home-based work, she was in the home. Ten minutes later, she's calling me, completely panicking, tearful, saying, oh my gosh, they didn't take him. They didn't take him to the ER. He went downstairs, made an attempt. He's okay, but he made an attempt. What did I do wrong? That was her worry. Said nothing. You got that agreement from someone that they were going to help this person stay safe, and they didn't. They chose not to. They chose not to take it serious. And so in that lens of mental health, documentation really matters because we tried to coordinate with all of the right people. But after that, we can't control those people, right? Like, they made some choices. The same applies for the community space of, like, you can give them the resources, but if they choose not to use them, it's not up to you to wear the Superman cape and rescue them. You can't work harder than them. And so I use that to empower the community because I know that there are people I've spoken to who are like, that's not my role. I don't want to do any of this. This makes me nervous. And that's okay. That's why I'm saying find someone who can. Make sure you know the resources so that you don't have to be their one and only. Because none of us want to be that. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So, to wrap up today, I want to introduce you very briefly to how things are shifting with technology to help rather than hurt when it comes to suicide and suicide assessment. There are lots of apps out there now that our people are using to cope, to track mood, to see how they feel, and to engage in access to crisis services. So I'm gonna give you an overview of six of them, three for the mental health professional side, things our schools and staff and um, mental health folks are using, and then three that the people themselves can use when they're in crisis. And by no means is this an exhaustive list. There are thousands of apps out there. And by the way, I don't get endorsement for saying these ones are cool. <laughs> I just think they have value. So let's talk about that. As a mental health clinician, I recognized that I needed to learn a lot more about suicide assessment when I came out of grad school. And so I think SAMHSA, the biggest national organization to do so, said, great, here's a tool. For those of you who are not comfortable or have not done a lot of suicide assessments as a mental health professional, here's your tool. And so it gave case studies, education, examples of how to ask questions related to suicide. And it's a tool for those green clinicians to use when they're just not feeling like they have a lot of experience asking about suicide or suicide experience. So this is the first one that we found. I know some of you are frantically writing. You can screenshot it, it's fine. <laughs> or come up after. The next one, self-disclosure, is one I created three years ago. Because in that moment, I still had a team of 15 therapists I was responsible for who were telling me I have no idea how to ask this question. So we created a suicide assessment app. We took that paper and pencil assessment we'd been trained on, made it interactive, allowed people to sit alongside the person in crisis and say, what's happening? 
What can I do for you? Can I safety plan with you? Can I access resources with you? And so now our nonprofit's piloting this in all the, the schools of Colorado. We have eight schools so far. We want this to go into every single school we can get it in because they have 900 students to one of them. So they need something to streamline it. So this is our tool that we're offering the mental health community. The third one applies to both clinicians and the people themselves that are struggling. Because that safety plan we just looked at is now in digital form. People lose paper, but they don't seem to lose their phone very often. It's always on them. So maybe that's where technology can be helpful, is it's always on them. So if they're in crisis, they can look at this and see what's going on. Has your warning signs, has your protective people, supports, um, action steps all in one place. And they can modify it and change it at any time to reflect what they're at. Three others to have you consider for the person in your life that's in crisis, the person who's looking for something they can do on their own for themselves. First one is one of our oldest ones that a lot of people know about, Virtual Hope Box. In the old days with suicide, you actually put together a box of things that reminded you why you wanted to live. Could have been quotes, pictures, tokens, trinkets. Well, now they made it into a digital of like, what can we put again into an app to help people feel safe and secure? What are their distraction techniques? What can they do? The screenshot you're seeing here, not that it's easy to see, is the distract me section. It has Sudoku puzzles, crosswords, word searches. Really helpful for those that are in their emotional head to go back to logic by having to do like a math problem or something of that nature. And so this one is customizable as well. Now I think the challenge is the meditation in here. My clients tell me the meditation, you have to read it, but you're supposed to have your eyes closed. So that's a little bit of a challenge. But maybe you use a different app for that, right? The meditation calm kind of piece. <clears throat> My three is what the Colorado Crisis Services and Peer Services is using the most. So they're actually trying to do some research on this one. This one has your three supports, has your hotline, has your access to 911 at a click of a button, but also has questions about what's keeping you alive and what your warning signs are. So very much about being analytical, being logical, thinking about your experience and documenting that in the app. And it really takes people out of that crisis moment back to logic. How did I get here? Why is this so dark for me? What can I do for myself? What's keeping me alive? So my three is an option. I think the challenge though is those three supports. If they're telling you they have no one, be careful presenting this to them. Because they might say, I don't have three people. I can't use it. But there's so many other great things in it that are worth checking out. And maybe you can help them find someone that they didn't first think of for the supports. The last one to me is fascinating. This is Wobot, and it's loaded through Facebook Messenger. Created by Stanford for those grad students that were up at 3 or 4 in the morning freaking out, having stress. Understandable, grad school's hard. Um, help them track their mood, taught them some CBT skills of what they could do in those moments of crisis when no one else was really available. People were sleeping, services were limited. What can we give them to empower them? So as they engage in the chat, they're being, they're being given tools. Have you tried this? Can you try this thing? Um, I'm noticing you're in this place again. Your mood was this the other day. Now the challenge with this one is it's artificial intelligence. It's not a person, it's a robot. So some of your clients are like, great, I love the 24-7 access, but I want the empathy. I need a person. And if that's the person in your life you're thinking about, you might actually be interested in um, COCO, K-O-K-O, -O, which is OK, OK, backwards. Very similar to this platform, but is a person, peer-to-peer -peer response. It's not a robot. 
and can still help them feel that connection that we've talked a lot about today. Questions about these tools so far? All right. So what are the implications of technology when it comes to suicide assessment, suicide prevention? Well, some of you are tracking this for things like machine learning. Anyone here heard that term, machine learning, maybe? Not really. Um, machine learning is showing up more so, just like neuroscience, tracking the brain, seeing how it lights up, what does depression look like in the brain versus suicidal thoughts. And machine learning really showed up on the scene in 2017 um, because Florida State University launched a research outcome, um, a, a paper, and they said, by collecting all these data points from a person in a hospital setting, they could predict their suicide attempt in the next, I think it was two weeks, um, with 92% accuracy. That got people's attention. You're telling me you can predict that someone might be at risk of suicide in the next two weeks just from a bunch of data? Well, yeah, we've talked about a lot of different points of, of concern, right? Risk factors. And they were tracking this. Now, they were looking at different populations and predicting these with between 82 and 92% accuracy, depending on that span of time. So machine learning is getting bigger because we're fascinated. We're like, if you can actually tell us that there's a warning here, that we can actually intervene, people want that, especially the loved ones. They want that peace of mind. So we're going to see how this shows up. Now, the other example I can think of is Facebook. They now are flagging or let you flag if someone seems to be at risk, they're struggling. They use those words, the cryptic sentences of, I won't be here tomorrow anyway. No one would care if I'm gone. You can now flag them so that they can get some support and they automatically are given the hotline, the national hotline for suicide. So we're trying to find ways to intervene while people are still accessing technology because it's what people are using, right? These two youngest generations, that's not going anywhere. It's what they use. So we're trying to meet them where they're at. So with that in mind, engagement, this is a tool that is engaging, right? Like we can use technology to help, not just hurt. Because I think that's the worry that we all have. And so is it a way to access people in a rural area that have limited resources? Is it a way to access someone who is available at odd hours? You're seeing telehealth show up a lot more, or they're doing the remote conference calls or um, sessions face-to-face. -face. So engagement would be a positive. Accessibility would be a positive. The challenge is, though, would be, can we track it? Technology is moving and changing so fast, we can try and do a, a formal research study and it's already changed. And so we can't say that data has any value anymore. So accuracy is a challenge. And then the future projects, we're seeing all these things around neuroscience, machine learning, and access to engagement through social media. It's showing up. So I share this because I don't want you to think like we're all about technology when I just told you three hours of social media a day put someone at risk. I just want you to be aware of how we're trying to meet the need, right? If people are using their technology more than ever, how do we actually use that for good? And so I think that's why these things are showing up. It's something for you to consider. For these last couple minutes, as I open up for some questions, I want you to know where I pulled a lot of this research from. This is not all mine. Um, Dr. Thomas Joyner is on the far left here. He's the one who had that capacity for suicide Venn diagram. His book is written for the everyday person. It's not written for clinicians. So if you want more answers, you want to self-discover, that's a book that I would recommend for anyone because it talks about why the perfect storm shows up and what we can do for our loved ones. The other three are all books written for the mental health community because we're all seeking how to do this better. Um, I think there's fear, there's worry, 
And the fact that 25% of mental health counselors will have someone die by suicide in their career freaks us out. That 25% of us will have that experience happen and will feel responsible and will feel um, potentially devastated or grief and loss because of that. So these last three books are really written for those the folks who are saying, I need something. Am I doing this well? Because as I mentioned at the beginning, things have changed a lot, even in the last five years, of what we do now to engage in suicide. For the community, these, these two links at the bottom have value because that assist training I mentioned that looks at your bias and makes you practice and role play, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of suicide? That training happens pretty frequently in our community, and it's usually free or really low cost for the community to say, can I feel prepared? Can I be that gatekeeper, that warm handoff to a resource? So these are listed for you as well. I just want to come back full circle to that number 135. By you being here this morning, you're hopefully going to positively impact those 135 people. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.